You are listening to Real Men Feel with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. Um, I really need to time stamp everything these days, it seems. So we are recording this on March 19th, 2020. We won't know till later if we're at the beginning, the middle, or the end, probably not the end, of the whole COVID-19 kind of probably not societal shutdown. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was there at the beginning. Yeah, so we'll get there. So my guest today is Frank King, and what seems like a lifetime ago, we were, we were going to be on the show, and we were going to talk about your your more traditional role, which is not traditional, of being the mental health comedian. True. And you were heading off on a cruise, and we were going to yeah. do the show once you got back. So yeah. You, you want to start with your cruise adventure? Uh, sure. Um, I'm guessing um, if your listeners type in Frank King, cruise comedian, coronavirus, they will find a... Hey, they'll be deluged <laughs> by a uh, a mountain of erroneous uh, news stories. The no matter how many times I said I was our, our ship is, was the Westerdam, which by the way is still having problems, uh, guilt by association. The Westerdam and the Diamond Princess were in the same part of the world, so people conflate the two. Um, the Diamond Princess they allowed people from China mainland to board before they sailed, and then they were ravaged by the flu. <laughs> Holland America wisely refused anybody boarding who had been to mainland China in the previous 14 days. So our ship never had the flu. Nobody on our ship, all 2,500 tested negative, but because we were in the same part of the world and you know, the, the word cruise ship is in the title, uh, they conflated the two. And I just went online today. Um, my virtual assistant said, Frank, the Western Dam still having trouble. So I looked it up and they, they were turned away from Juneau, Alaska, and they're going to have to dock somewhere in Mexico to have the people disembark because they were the guilt by association. People associate the Westerdam with the flu. So I was on the Westerdam starting February 1st. We sailed from Hong Kong and everything looked like it was going just fine. Uh, they took our temperature. Nobody on the ship had a temperature. We were headed to the Philippines and the president of the Philippines said, sorry, no ships from Macau, Hong Kong or mainland China are allowed to dock, even though we, Hong Kong at the time had no cases. So we turned around and we headed toward um, South Korea, which is going to be our next stop. <laughs> the South Koreans said, no. So we thought, well, we'll just go to Japan, hit a couple of ports in Japan. Japan said, no. So we thought, okay. At that point, the captain comes on and goes, look, the cruise is essentially over. We're just looking for a place to dock and disembark. So we tried Guam and Guam said, no. <laughs> so we turned around. We actually sailed in a circle for several hours, like a plane circling. Oh, wow until they found two provisional potential ports, one being Bangkok, the other where we ended up eventually in, in Cambodia. And we got pretty close to Bangkok. They, they thought they could work it out, but then they couldn't. And they sent out a gunship, a Thai Navy gunship to, 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 to shadow us. I guess, I guess they thought uh, Speed 2 Cruise Control was a documentary. <laughs> And so we went to our secondary port in Cambodia. The reason they wanted to go to Bangkok was big international airport, you know, uh, the one in Cambodia, a much smaller port. So they had to rent air buses and take us all to Phnom Penh, bigger airport to fly us home. Well, like the third Airbus lands in Phnom Penh, passengers take off for Malaysia. And that older woman tested positive in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, supposedly. So that froze everybody in place. There's still 200 people on the ship. There's 600 of us in the hotel. By the way, again, nobody's been quarantined because nobody's nobody has the flu. And what, what, uh, what's the date by now? Uh, uh, let's see, I got off the ship on the 15th, last day of my contract, <laughs> last day of any cruise contract. By the way, um, yeah, I'm pretty much done. Uh, so, so it was actually the the expected length of the cruise. Yeah, was actually met. Oh, we, everybody got off on the 15th, and that was the end of my contract. In all my contracts, it turns out. Uh, and they, we went to um, Phnom Penh, and I went to the hotel, and a bunch of people were getting lined up to go to Malaysia to go on to wherever they were from. Well, when the woman tested positive, all those people that were at the airport had to come to the hotel with us, 
and sit in place. And, and while they worked on, you know, testing the woman. And so we were all kind of frozen in place. So went to bed that night, 16th and woke up the next morning, a little note on the, under our door said, you know, hang around your room starting at eight o'clock in the morning. We're going to test everybody. Well, 200 passengers bought tickets on planes and they left that day before the testing began. I made my flight arrangements that night so I could be there for the test. So where I met the guy from the CDC who was there supervising the test, the US CDC and the Pasteur Institute. And it was the World Health Organization test that the Trump administration turned down because, you know, they offered it to us in January. So look, we got these tests. We will be happy to share with you. And for whatever reason, the Trump administration said no. So um, I took the test and then I had a plane ticket. I had a gig on the 20th of February. I thought I got to go because I'm not going to make that gig if I don't leave. And I got tested for temperature in Bangkok. And then before they let me board for Dubai, Dubai didn't seem to care. And then when I got to Seattle, I'm walking through the immigration customs area. And there's a guy standing right in my path who goes, Frank, we've been looking forward to meeting you. They had tracked me from Cambodia and two hours with them, health questionnaire tests. And they said, look, you're fine. Go home. Well, I made the mistake of speaking to the media after I got clear of customs immigration. And that's when the trouble began because they every, every, pretty much every editor, whether it was television, internet, or newspaper, put the Q word in the quarantine comedian slips quarantine and comes home dragging the virus. And that's when the troll traffic started. And that's when we changed our home phone number, shut down three social media accounts. Um, our neighbor said, look, just tell your husband to stay inside. We'll put food on the front porch. Nobody would believe that I wasn't, you know, I didn't come back. Some guy called me, you came back to this county to kill everybody. I said, no, I've got a list and you just made the VIP section. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, yeah, every, and I, I've contacted a defamation attorney and, and they're deciding whether they want to pursue the case, sue the media. And we're talking um, Entertainment Tonight, Inside Edition, the New York Post, the Daily Mail in London, the Independent London, Newsweek, Time, Huffington Post, all of them use the Q word, no matter how many times I said I wasn't quarantined. Again, guilt by association. I understand why the public can't, you know, see the difference. But the media, I never, I was, <laughs> they did it to clicks and eyeballs. I understand. Right. Right. Anyway. So, so, even to, to, so just to, to this day, to now, you know, a, a full month later, you know, still never temperature, no symptoms, you're as healthy as, as, yeah. as you can be these days. Yeah. And, and only uh, one. Only one of the 39,000 or so people in the U.S. has actually been tested. Hmm. And only one of several dozen in, in my home county. I'm, I'm probably the safest guy to shake hands with in the county because I've been tested. I've been tested negative. So, but that doesn't seem to matter to anybody. I still get the occasional, you know, comment on a post. Uh, you came through Seattle and now people are dying. Oh, yeah. Was your first stop that nursing home? Yeah. Yeah. Nursing home. <laughs> and then I swung by, swung by an elementary school and then, uh, yeah. And then. Yeah, and I, you know, you sneak, you sneaked into the country. I wish I had that skill set. I really do. Um, you can't really sneak into the U.S. I mean, on, on the northern northern border, uh, yeah, southern border. Yeah, not, was, not, not by commercial airline. <laughs> no, no, unless I'd parachuted out like uh, D.B. Cooper. Uh, yeah, so yeah, but it's uh, the, the troll traffic and all that's died down, and and the New York Times even did a story later in the uh, month about how the people coming back from that part of the world, from the cruise ships who tested negative were still facing stigma yeah. and ostr being ostracized. It just began because people were terrified of the, of the virus. And anyway, I'm going to do a Ted talk on it called, um, going viral, <laughs> how the counter, how the cancel culture and the coronavirus killed my comedy career. Has there been repercussions to the career? I, I know, I know the cruise ship, the cruise industry said uh, no more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was an engagement, the one I came back for, ironically, um, ended up, uh, was going to reschedule, ended up canceling. And then there was one more in Alaska that was kind of iffy. I mean, they bought my airfare, but I hadn't gotten a deposit yet. So, uh, the only, the question is how many, how many did I lose because somebody was thinking about booking me and Google me and then went, Oh dear God. Yeah. 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 So we don't, we well, don't know. And well, at this point, all events are postponed and canceled. <clears throat> Anyway, so. Well, um, yeah, and, and thankfully, um, yeah, I was made irrelevant by a pandemic. Uh, that it, it took a pandemic to get me off Google page one, uh, which I think is probably a, a badge of honor. Um, the, so far, they, everybody, so far everybody has either 
Nobody else has canceled yet. They've all rescheduled or are going to reschedule when the world returns to yeah. it. Or, and this is kind of the upside, um, one of the one of the, my clients said, look, can you do a webinar instead? Mm. Webinar. So <laughs> I contacted a company that I work with, and they go, yeah, we can do a webinar. We can do, yeah, oh, well, absolutely. We can do keynotes, breakouts, whatever you want. So I think I'll probably end up ramping up that into my business. Yeah. You know, it, it's going to make, it's going to mean a lot now. Uh, later on, it might not mean as much, but as a, money saving, you know, why run a hotel and cater and, you know, why not just do it virtually? Right. So anyway, that, that would be the minor silver lining is it's going to cause a lot more virtual meetings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I have, I'm teaching two workshops in April and we've been able to successfully convert them to be online workshops. So, yeah. you know, there is a way for things to continue and for people to get support and for people to support other people. But, you know, I didn't really introduce you at all, but you're, you know, writer, speaker, comedian, um, world traveler, you know, country writer. jumper, border invader, whatever. But, Jason um, Bourne, wannabe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, former writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. Uh, did, I've been doing stand-up comedy full-time for 34 years. Had yeah. the longest comedy club road trip on record, 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home. Back in the day, opened up for Rosie and Ellen and Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Kevin James and Adam Sandler. Cool. So Back in the day. A, a lot of what you do is, is battling mental, mental illness, mental health stigmas. And yep. you mentioned the stigma against people just assumed to have been in contact with this, you know, the coronavirus in some way. Has there been a relationship at all? Is the stigma to both of those things completely different or how's that? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the stigma with mental illness is, you know, actually I've got two mental illnesses. One's called major depressive disorder, depression. There's a stigma to that. And then I have chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people like me in my tribe, uh, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution, problems large and small. And the example I give is my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts, unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. Sounds absurd, but there may be somebody listening to this podcast right now who thinks like that and they believe, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't didn't have a name and they're just some kind of freak. And so um, there's a stigma with being suicidal as well, uh, far worse than the stigma of, of coming back from that part of the world, uh, from Asia. I, although I got to tell you, somebody said to me, sure, you tasted negative. This is a post, uh, comment on a post on Facebook. Sure, you tested negative, but you drug your luggage through that area. And it may have, the germs may have been on your luggage. Okay. All right. Yeah. <sighs> Again, it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of fear and, and, you know, I'm doing my best to, help people quell the fear, face the fear, you know, explore what you're most afraid of and realize, well, that's really not going to happen. Or at least it's not happening no. right now. So don't put your energy into it. But you know, even your story around, and we did not have a chance to talk before the show really. Um, so I'm a multiple suicide attempt survivor. Oh, wow. Uh, I have a story. <laughs> um, when I was like 18 years old, I got a flat tire. And my first thought was, fuck this, jump into traffic and die. It's not worth changing this time. Ooh, your first thought, man. Yeah, worse yes. than I do. Yeah, yeah. At least so, I've got uh, options. Yeah, yeah. And I always tell people, like, if you've ever seriously contemplated, that option is always in the back of your mind, waiting for a weak moment, waiting to show up. And and that's been true for, you know, um, much of my life. So I've always been open and share that. And that's really what attracted me to talking to you ah. to begin with, right? Well, and so, see, if this, see if this applies to you. Uh, one of the reasons I am still alive today is, is because of that option. Because I know um, the book I'm going to write, my memoir, the title is um, – starting the conversation on suicide, which is what everybody hires me to do. And the subtitle is um, living in the exit row. And I've got a picture on the cover of a guy on a plane in the window seat on the exit row, looking out the window. Cause that's where we live. Yeah. So if things get really bad, you know, just puh, pop the door. So that, that actually ironically keeps me alive. Cause I know I can end the pain anytime I, you know, it gets too bad. If that makes sense. No, I, I mean, I get that totally. Um, and what I realized for myself was it was almost like that thought process, that repetitive thought was my safety. Yeah. Like just having, well, I have this option. Like I said, it's, and there were times like, I know I'm not going to take that option, but it somehow brings me comfort that that option is there and it's weird. And if I was like, don't, if you don't get it, don't try to understand it. Like I'm, I'm no. glad it makes no sense to you, but it does for yeah. some of us. I've got a friend who's a, mortician and he says you know people oftentimes somebody dies and they say why should i go on and and he counsels them well let's you know first thing to do let's take this the option of suicide off the table i'm like no don't <laughs> leave it just move it to one side yeah. just let them have that you know as a yeah, speaking to someone who 
and it's also the reason I started comedy. Um, I was, I was married to my first wife, lovely woman. Just, we were completely different, nothing in common. Shouldn't have gotten married, but you know what they say, opposites attract. She was pregnant. I wasn't. Um, and doing insurance business, great business, but not for me. And I knew I should be going to open mic night. That's what I was destined to do. And I just, I realized I was going to kill myself if something didn't change. So I thought, well, <laughs> what the heck? Divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works great, if it doesn't, I can still kill myself. So that's why my third Ted talk is called suicide, the secret of my success, mm-hmm. because it was, I hadn't, I had nothing to lose by putting it all on one roll of the dice because I was going to die anyway. So yeah, so I really wanted to ask, like, what, what came first in your life? Was it being funny or being suicidal? Uh, being funny. Well, far, yeah. I mean, pretty good. I don't remember being depressed. Um, my dad died very young. I was eight. It was my birthday and Thanksgiving. Um, but that, I don't remember being depressed until college when I was going to a different school than my girlfriend who became my first wife. But I just thought I was, you know, heart sick, love sick, whatever. And didn't become, don't, didn't have a suicidal thought until I was 23 separated from that first wife and driving down 163 in San Diego about five in the afternoon and just had that thought. I just killed myself. And I thought, Whoa, where the hell did that come from? That was my first conscious, you know, sort of bubbled up like, Hey, here's option C. What do you think? So yeah, the funny, funny is funny is as organic as the other. And I, and my, my um, third Ted talk was called, uh, mental benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. And I believe that my sense of humor, timing, vivid imagination, whatever, is simply the flip side of my major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation, that they're all bound together. Because I can teach you to do stand-up. I can teach you to write stand-up. What I can't teach you to do is process the information the way I do. I can't make your brain work. You know, I'm on a flight somewhere. Oh, I was going through Atlanta, and it was a, it was. A, they had just said that you, that you could use your iPhone on takeoff or landing if it was in the airplane mode. So the flight attendant, that's not written down anywhere. So she's, she's got to you know improv it. Hmm. So she gets through you know very southern Delta flight attendants of oxygen mask, floor path lighting, seat cushion, and she gets to the part about the cell phone and or the iPad iPhone, and she has to figure out what she's going to say. So she goes, "Ladies and gentlemen, due to new FAA regulation." You can almost hear her thinking. Then she gets inspired. She goes, due to an FAA regulation, if you have small equipment, you can continue playing with it. I'm been over doubling my seat. Nobody else in the plane is laughing. My seatmate thinks I've lost my mind. He goes, what? I go, let's review. <laughs> Before I can review, she comes back on. If you have large equipment, you're going to have to shove that on the seat in front of you. I'm down on my knees. So everybody on the plane heard the same thing, but I processed it that way. And I believe that is actually the flip side of my major depressive disorder, chronic suicide. It's just the way my brain is wired. And, you know, that was the point of the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. If you look at the list of people, athletes, actors, writers, directors, politicians, who have one mental illness or another, and at the end I say, look, I'm not saying you have to have a mental illness to be rich, famous, you know, or whatever, but it doesn't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, does it ever hurt? Oh sure. Okay, good. Uh, I just want to be you know be be open oh, yeah. and authentic about that. Oh, yeah. okay. No, no. I am um, you know you know major depressive disorder. It's a cycle. Uh, two days to two weeks. Mine's about two days, and recurs like a flat spot on a wheel. Just every now and then it stops. And uh, with medication, I started taking medication when I was sixty, and it shortened the length of each episode and it stretched out the time between. But yeah, I mean, I still have you know I still have. Um, more good days than bad, but still the depression every now and then rears. It's like a, it's like, it's sort of like a friend you really don't like that shows up. <laughs> you know, you're going to be spending a couple of days with them. So you just kind of, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Until they get ready to leave. Yeah. I have to talk about like that. There's, there's a comfort level, even with things that are grossly uncomfortable. If, if it's yeah. what you're used to, you still like, I was still, Oh good. Oh, that big heavy blanket of depression. Okay. I'll, I'll hide in this for a bit. Yeah. Well, and I used to say that I battle depression, but I get, I changed my verbiage because I realized battle implies I can win. And there is no win. I don't believe for me it's organic, and, but I, I can tie like an uneasy truce like North and South Korea, uh, or I can lose. I can kill myself. Um, so I decided rather than resist the depression that I would, Aikido is a martial art where you blend with your partner's energy. If they punch your direction, you step offline and you blend rather than oppose the force you blend with their energy 
And so I just try to blend with the energy of the depression and move forward, you know, use that energy to move forward rather than try to spend all that energy trying to resist, trying to feel better, all this, you know, so seems, and I've got, I believe in a holistic approach, diet, exercise, good night's sleep, uh, medication, meditation. And my fifth Ted talk is called the, uh, Mental health and the orgasm. Treat your depression single-handedly. <laughs> yeah. I love my iPhone, but it's my second favorite handheld device. <laughs> so my, 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 so my, the reason I tell you that is because it's, it's a good night's sleep, exercise, diet, meditation, medication, masturbation. Um, yeah, you, you think people don't talk about depression and suicide. They really don't talk about orgasm and masturbation. Yeah. But, uh, and it has, orgasms have a, palliative effect it releases dhea and uh and uh, endorphins and it helps suppress cortisol and anyway it's there's you know there's actual science in the oh get this um it also men who masturbate more frequently and they define that as more than 21 times a month uh have a 20 percent lower incidence of prostate cancer and i said <laughs> to the audience so i'm pretty much immortal at this point um <laughs> I said, and the, and the curation team said to me, Frank, after you quote that figure, you need to give them an action item. I said, you, you think I need to encourage men to masturbate? <laughs> it's kind of like barking in dogs. It's self-reinforcing. But I said to the audience, I told them that story, you know, about the curation team. I said, so let's, let's keep the curation team happy. All right, gentlemen, here is your action item on this subject. Beat it like it owes you money. It's, a, it's the best, most fun TED Talk I've ever done, and I got a standing ovation at the end, my first standing <laughs> ovation. So, uh, yeah, but so I believe in a whole – some people just go with pharmacology, which is fine. Yeah. If that's, your, that's how you're wired, but I believe yeah. it's, uh, you know – you know, it's, that's a funny thing. I think if there's anything amusing about the coronavirus pandemic is that all these people are worried about their health. But, you know, on a day-in, day-out basis, the majority of these people, I'm sure, are not eating right, are not exercising, yeah. or some of them are smoking, you know, drinking. Uh, it's it's day-in, day-out, I believe, uh, habits that, you know, yeah. extend your life. Yeah, 90% of what we're told to do is things we should have always been doing. Like, yes. And now people are actually doing it. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But you know, have you always been so open about your mental health challenges? Or? No. Yeah. Okay. No, I didn't. Um, um, after the recession 2010, the last recession, you know, that's the sad thing about this. Now we can use the phrase in the last recession because, <laughs> you know, in the recession, we talked about the depression. Um, in 2010, we lost everything in uh, bankruptcy because the speaking business dropped off 80%. And, um, at which point I could, I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after the recession, meeting planners came to me and said, Frank, we love you dearly, but we can't just pay you that kind of money just to be funny. We need some uh, takeaways, learning objectives. You know, you need to teach our audience something. And I thought, what in the hell am I? Because I, I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to be a – I love the Zig Ziglers of the world, those guys. I thought I could do that if I just had something to teach. So um, I began thinking about my – mental health history. And I read a book by a woman named Judy Carter called the message of you, the message of you subtitle is amazing. How to turn your life into a money making speaking career. (laughs) And I know Judy. Um, matter of fact, I'm on her website as her TEDx coach, her, her, well, you know, if you go to there, look look for coaching, you'll find me. Um, Anyway, I read the book. Going into the book, I thought I got nothing to teach anybody. Halfway through the book, I thought, son of a bitch, I could do suicide prevention. And my wife, who's a big TED Talk fan, said, you ought to do a TEDx talk. And I'm like, what's a TEDx talk? She goes, Google it. So I Googled it. And just so happens, about the time I got some email where they said, we're looking for people to do a TEDx talk in Vancouver. So I sent in my idea, you know, on uh, starting a conversation on suicide. And I got it. And part of the reason I got it was I went up, uh, turned out it was Vancouver, Canada, not Vancouver, Washington. They called me and said, Frank, we have good news. We got bad news. Good news is we'd like you to participate. Uh, bad news is you think it's Vancouver, Washington, which is two hours from your house. It's Vancouver, British Columbia, which is seven hours. So I actually flew up to the audition. And in the meantime, Robin Williams had passed away. So comedian, suicide, they said, look, well, we'd love to have you do it, but we insist you talk about Robin. Well, I had worked with him um, a couple of nights at the comedy store in, in San Diego. So I said, sure. He was already in there anyway. And so at age 52, I came out as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew. 
because and we're because we're great actors. There's a reason I have a Screen Actors Guild card. Um, and before my wife's about to hit play on YouTube to, to watch my TEDx when it posted, I go, look, don't hit play yet. I need to tell you about a half a dozen things you don't know about, and I don't want you to learn them in the YouTube video. So I, that's when I told her all the, you know, that I've been depressed, suicidal, came close to killing myself. Uh, so nobody knew until I was 52. And I've oh, met, I've met people who've held that secret, your secret and my secret about thoughts of suicide well into their sixties because they're afraid to tell their therapist, especially in a place like California, where you tell your therapist you're having thoughts of suicide and they're bound by law to report that in 5150, you is the code. And you next thing you know, you're in front of a judge and they're talking about an involuntary detention order for three days. So, yeah. So I, like a lot of people never told anybody, especially not the part about, you know, sitting at a a railroad crossing, looking at the railroad train thinking if I pulled on the tracks, that would do it. Cause you know, neuronormal people don't have those thoughts. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. Cause so, so I've been open about it for a long time now. And so many people, will confess to me and tell me that they've had. So I, I it, my wife is the only person I've met that I believe when she tells me that she has never had a suicidal thought. I think that, um, with neuronormal people, I think it's not uncommon for them to have a passing thought, you know, a transient feeling like, you know, divorce, bankruptcy, yeah. uh, drop out of college, fail out of college, don't get, don't pass the bar, you know, and then you have, they have that thought, oh, I could just kill myself. But, I, but you know, I think that's, that's much more situational than you and I. Because I, I don't know about you, but I've been most depressed in my life at some of the best times in my life. And I always worry what the hell's going to happen when I'm this depressed and things are, you know, uh, in the shitter. And I, well, I found out. <laughs> yeah. Is it like in, in, in my life? So I've, I've been a multimillionaire and I've been on food stamps and welfare. And yep. depression could show up in, at each end of that spectrum and anywhere in between. Yeah. But it, so it, it is like, I, I, for me, temporary circumstances can trigger it easily. But it all can just be everything's fine, and suddenly yep. the bottom falls out. Yeah, and I tell people, look, you know, it can trigger it. You know, something can can trigger it for. I, I have I have several triggers. Uh, if I fall too far behind on my paperwork and the pressure builds up and I get stressed, and I can trigger it. If I disappoint my wife, turns out, or anybody whose opinion I respect, and my wife. Now that people ask me, is it better to be out about it than it is to to not tell? And I said, well. Let me give you an example. Now that my wife knows that I live with this and the disappointment triggers it, she plays with that. I'll say, honey, are you mad at me? She goes, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. So we can joke about it. And that way, if she sees that I'm not happy, if she knows that I'm cycling down, she knows it's nothing she's done or hasn't done. It's not personal. So she doesn't have to worry that, you know, she's offended me some way because she knows what's happening. That's why I encourage people, if you can, and I got an email from a guy in the Netherlands, I think, or Switzerland. He said, um, I've been depressed. He goes, I can't remember the last time I was happy. And I thought I was all by myself in this. And then I watched your TEDx talk and I realized I'm not alone. And he's 42. He's got a lovely eight-year-old daughter, good job, wonderful wife. And I encouraged him. I said, look, when the time is right, I, I would encourage you, perhaps with the help of a third party, like a therapist, you know, get the family together with a therapist to guide the process and let them know what you're living with. Because, you know, it's, you need to, with the book that we just, that just came out, we did a book called Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a men's mental mechanics manual. Uh, it's called, if you go to Amazon and type in Guts, Grit, and the Grind, you'll find it. And it's all about men's mental health because there were, we looked around for a book on men's mental health and there just wasn't anything. So we, it's an anthology, 12 stories of 12 guys with a variety of problems. And you know, this starts with things are good. First 500 words, middle 500 words, things go bad. Last 500 words. Here's how I'm coping. And that with the idea that men might pick it up and find their problem in the book and go to the coping part and see, Oh, I could do that. Cause men tend to take advice from men is the, um, and, and, and in the book, it looks like an automobile owner's manual because there's a ton of metaphors. For example, you buy a car. Um, oftentimes, if you're responsible, you get a AAA membership because, you know, at some point, a flat tire, you know, the, you know some glitch, you're going to be stuck somewhere. So that's kind of the thing with mental illness is you need, you need to, to plan ahead and then 
and you also need to do maintenance with a car. You need to change the oil and rotate the tires, top off the fluids, and you know, and and uh, if men took care of their brains like they take care of their car, or, I'm sorry, if men took care of their cars like they take care of their brains, they better buy a bus pass <laughs> because it, you know, the brain and in and you should have you should let family know you should have a group of people who understand what you're going through so you have you know support people to call when things go south. That's the whole point of the book is is that whole, that sort of holistic approach, putting a team together of people who know and love you, maintaining your mental health, diet, exercise, good night's sleep, medication, meditation, whatever. So, and there's gonna be there's gonna be one book, and it turned into 800 pages. So it's 48 stories. So each each volume of the four volumes will have 12 stories plus clinical information, resources, you know, uh, exercises. So it's really a it really is a manual. Yeah. And it looks like a, it's got a guy on the front cover with a its top head popped off and there's a mechanic looking inside, which is my favorite m- metaphor is uh, wouldn't it be nice if men had a check engine light? <laughs> you know, it pops on. So you go to the mental mechanic and the guy goes, well, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. <laughs> It'd be really nice if that were the case. Yeah. But anyway, uh, squeaky brakes. We related that to drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Oh, in the beginning, a couple of drinks, fine, joint, okay, everything's good. But then, you know, it gets to the point where you lose your job over it or you lose your girlfriend or wife or boyfriend over it. You know, the brakes are beginning to squeak. And that's that's the car's way of telling you it's time to, you know, we I need new pads and rotors, whatever. And you've got to do that in your own life. You've got to listen to those I, I kind of keep car by ear. I don't know if you do this, but if I start the car and I hear a noise I didn't hear the day before, I think, okay, <laughs> I need to take this in because that wasn't there yesterday. That's kind of how I think it is with mental health. If you wake up and you're like, man, I am depressed. If you try to figure out, look back 24 hours and figure out, you know, is there something that triggered it or is my medication not working? Anyway, that's, that's the idea. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just find, that silence kills, especially for men. So yeah, that that's why oh, I God. talk about it. I've been doing this show for four years now. I think I first did a public YouTube video talking about that I was a, a suicide attempt survivor back in like 2008 or nine. Um, but, but I have found anytime I share myself, anytime I'm open and authentic, I only get love and benefits and connection back. There, there has not been a downside to sharing in my life, but that hmm. doesn't mean that everyone, yes, you all need to go, be public and you know tell the world but but certainly yeah if you tell your spouse tell your a a coach a a pastor you know someone that you Hmm. feel safe with because for me a big part is telling someone how you feel and they they stay there they don't you don't have to say anything back but just just don't turn and run away that's for me was the big fear of telling someone how bad i felt yeah and i've got people in my life uh, my workout partner uh said to me one day how you doing i go i'm wretchedly depressed Hmm. He goes, what does it look like? I said, well, remember when you're 18 years old and every other thought was about sex? He goes, yeah, what's your every other thought about? My bed and Netflix. So I'm able to tell him, I'll be honest with him, every now and then I like to screw with normal people. I was really tired one day after two keynotes in Sacramento. I got in the Uber, nice young man, looks at me, you know, we look in the rearview mirror, our eyes locked. He goes, hey, man, how you doing? I go, uh, I'm uh, depressed and suicidal. How about you? <laughs> He goes, what am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> I said, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah. I said, you're supposed to ask me, do I have a plan? So he goes, uh, do you have a plan? And there's long pause. And then he goes, does it involve Uber? Brilliant. Funny. But yeah, every now and then I get tired of putting on the game face. Hmm. Um, a friend of mine said to me uh, at the last conference I did, he's an osteopath. And he said, yeah, Frank, I get up in the morning, I put on my game face. Uh, but some days, by the end of the day, it's like it was made out of some kind of relatively strong wax. But by the end of the day, it's beginning, you know, it's beginning to sag in spots. And so, and the way he tells people, the way he started telling people he wasn't, you know, was was um, depressed. He used to come in every day and there's a whiteboard next to the chair in the dental office. And he would put something, uh, something on the whiteboard and he put a smiley face. Well, one day he goes in and he got the idea. He put the face, but he put a straight line instead of a smile. And you think nobody notices. And as soon as the hygienist walked in, she looks at she looks at him, she goes, what's wrong? Why do you think something's wrong? Because it's not smiling. And that was his way of, because you know, people who are depressed, 
perhaps suicidal, especially suicidal in the, in the seven days leading up to an attempt, oftentimes eight out of 10 times, they give hints, direct, indirect, verbal, behavioral, two out of 10, which I was, I'm not telling anybody, nobody, I'm not dropping any hints, but eight out of 10 people uh, are ambivalent, eight out of 10, nine out of 10. That's the good news. It's a, it's a, it's the most preventable cause of death in the, in the world. If you know what to look for, because people say to me, I, you know, he never gave any indication. Well, that's not true. Um, in eight out of 10 cases, it's like people say to me, we have German shepherds and they'll say, I would never have a German shepherd. I was bitten by a dog as a child and the dog never gave me any indication it was going to bite me. That's not true. The dog probably froze. Eyes went flat. Ears went back. These all happen in sequence. And then the cackles come up last, like, dude, please don't come any close. I don't want to bite you. Oh, well, too bad. <laughs> so with, with depression, that's what I teach in my keynotes is signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. So that you can, you can spot that, you know? Yeah. And it's important to speak. And, and I love how the, your, your Uber driver handled it beautifully. Um, but yeah, it's okay to ask. And, and saying suicide doesn't make people commit suicide. No. Like, it's okay to talk about. In fact, you, you'll save someone's life by how, how serious. And again, do you have a plan? And yeah. you know, no, it's just a passing thought. Great. Are you, are you, do you feel safe right now? You know, can I leave you? Should you, be, you want to do something together? Like, there's all sorts of ways you can handle it. But I, I really yeah. want to know if, if during this unprecedentedly chaotic, crazy time we have, for people that already have mental health issues, be it depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, in this time when daily life is changing and news is updating, you know, by the hour at times, do yeah. you have any tips to, to, to better navigate this kind of emotional turmoil? Yeah, and part of the problem is, and I'm getting ready to do, I just did a one-pager for a keynote on this. Hang on. So I got my trash can right here. <laughs> okay, we get a preview. I took my regular key- keynote uh, one page and I edited it. Um, how to how to how to socially distance and stay sane? Um, how does social distancing help? What exactly does it entail? And how do you practice it without sacrificing your physical and mental health? And so um, I'll give tips on, for example, limit the amount of news you consume, be it on television or on the internet. And, 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 and once you've heard the news, try to figure out a way to wash out the negative out of your system. Um, spend time outdoors, even if it's by yourself. Or spend the time outdoors with um, friends or family. You know, because outdoors, the air is moving. You know, you don't have to get be hugging and kissing each other. But if you're just together walking, um, try to remember things that you did um, in a situation where you're alone at home that give you joy. Whether it's reading a book or putting together a crossword or a puzzle or doing crossword. Try to remember things that you enjoyed that you now have the time for. Uh, Me personally, I'm catching up on all sorts of stuff that I never seem to have time for when the world is, you know, is, is, is normal. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm working, I've got, I'm helping a guy ghostwrite a, I'm ghostwriting a book for guys. I'll start that. I'm going to do an audio version of the book I mentioned to you and I'm going to get that knocked out before this is all, all over. And I've, you know, updating my website and like you, I decided, um, webinars. Why, why did, why did that not occur to me before? So I made arrangements. Um, I told all the speakers bureaus that I work with, look, I, rather than cancel, let's try one. So I'm trying to use the, use it, uh, to be see it as an opportunity rather than, but the problem I think is the isolation. If you're already depressed, and having thoughts of suicide, and all of a sudden you're isolated. I've got a friend who's my podcast partner on the suicide prevention punchline. She goes, I, you know, it's really depressing. She goes, you have a lovely wife. I'm stuck at home with my folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, 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 yeah. And, you know, and she's, she's from Pakistan. Uh, her folks are from Pakistan, very conservative. And she's 30 and from Pakistan and Muslim. So 30 is an old maid in that mm-hmm. culture. And so there's some pressure. Uh, they're not, she's a comedian. They're not, they're not really happy about that, although she's really good. Uh, professional speaker, got two TED Talks. But that's not a real job, of course. Uh, so, yeah, so that's what worries me is people who are already in a bad place and they're suddenly socially isolated. So um, I recommend if you're part of a team at work, 
you know, have a have a meeting as if you were at work. Do a Zoom team meeting or just a Zoom, you know, eight o'clock in the morning coffee, virtual coffee right. with everybody. So you don't feel so disconnected. I think you need to remain connected, but not physically. There's a difference between physical separation and mental separation from these people. So yeah, it's going to be a laundry list of things you can do. Exercise. You know, you can't go to the gym because a lot of gyms are closed, but you know, walk around the block. Um, I've got like stretchy bands and some other things I can do at home by myself. Uh, so that, 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 but yeah, the whole mental health thing of people either neuronormal and just often find themselves, well, I tell you what would drive me crazy. And that we know that's not a long trip. Um, is that if I was stuck at home six weeks, cause Oregon schools are closed for six weeks, stuck at home with the kids, bless their hearts for six weeks. There was a guy in Seattle who volunteered to be in that first round of testing on the flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, my guess is he's got kids, you know, <laughs> and it was like the fourth day they were home and he's like, okay, look, I'll risk my life yeah. <laughs> and take the $15,000. I'm going in to, you know, to volunteer to be a lab rat because I'm going to kill somebody if I stay here. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is important to, Keep doing something that brings you joy, something that you've been putting off that you can do at home. But yeah, um, there's all sorts of like Netflix has an ad in that you can queue up the same movie and watch it together and have, you know, do mystery science theater with your friends and trade comments and chat about stuff. So there, there is a way to be physically distant, but not emotionally, mentally isolated. With yeah, the, connected. And I, I think getting, yeah. getting together with people, like, like I said, if you have a team you work with at work, you know, have a team coffee, have a team meeting, have a, you know, get to talk about how each of you are coping with the, you know, somebody may have an idea that, Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I got, I got a, I got a shit ton of yard work that I've got to work in because spring is sprung. The grass is too long. And so I'm going to work that in, you know, the garage needs clean. And the, they suggest some of those things you've been putting off around yeah. the house. My co-author Sally Spencer Thomas said, yeah, my house is, is, is as clean as it's been in a decade <laughs> because she just, took one day and just did a deep clean she'd been meaning to do forever. So yeah, I think if you can, if you can, you know, action is oftentimes the antidote to those, the thoughts of depression. And if you just keep moving and if you're having trouble doing that, by the way, I do something called gamification. I make a deal with myself. For example, the gym, my deal is if I get out of the house and go to the gym, all I have to do is go in and do one rep of one exercise and I can turn around and go home. And that's the game. And only once in recent memory have I actually taken the out. I was at a hotel the other night, and I was going to work out on the elliptical runner for 45 minutes. And the day kept moving on, and it got to be close to bedtime. And so I went down to the gym. I did a minute and a half on the elliptical <laughs> and said, okay, see you tomorrow morning. But the gamification, making it a game. And then if I'm really depressed, I make a list of things, like a to-do list. And my deal with myself is if I get everything on that list done after I've done the last thing, I don't care if the sun's still out, I can go back to bed yeah. and binge watch Netflix. So it's a game. If I do all these things, then I can do that. So it's a way of getting yourself moving. Yeah. Um, that, that's what I always find is key. Um, my worst time has always been the morning. So I like, I, and I tell my wife before, before it's bad, I give her total permission chew me out, call me nays, make me get out of bed. Cause once I'm up and moving, I feel way better than I did just sitting there. So even if it's just you get out of bed so that you go sit somewhere else and watch Netflix for 10 hours, great. And congratulate yourself for making it. If that's a big leap, you know, make it. But, you know, momentum is always there. The, the momentum to stay still and do nothing. But, you know, it takes conscious effort to make that shift. But once you do, it, it's, you'll feel better. Like, yeah, and, the, and the metaphor I use for neuronormal people, or the simile, I guess it is, um, I think they don't understand. When you say you can't get out of bed, they, they think physically. And I could turn, I could turn sideways, put my feet on the floor, and stand up. But it's that mental, um, and it's like it's like the Greek character Sisyphus, the Greek god Sisyphus. He gave fire to man. Big mistake. And so the rest of the gods punished him by making him roll a rock up a hill every day, with the idea that eventually he'd get over the top and quit. But every time he got near the top, it would roll back down to the bottom. So I tell him that if you have a mental illness, it's like it's like that. Every morning when you wake up there's a rock and a hill. Some days a rock is small and the hill is not so steep. Some days a rock is a boulder and the hills Kilimanjaro. And for a lot of us, the day comes when you wake up and you just simply can't move the rock and you know, you're tired of living and that's, that's that.
So my job is to make sure that everybody who hears me speak and everybody they love can, can wake up in the morning and continue to move the rock. Yeah. Instead so. of just sitting there wishing the rock would roll back on you while you're laying there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I get that. Exactly. Well, you know, there are people who are passively suicidal who, hmm. who they would never actively shoot themselves, but they, they say, you know, I just like to go to sleep and never wake up or they pray to God every night that they, you know, there's that prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray to the Lord myself. If I die before I wake, I'm like, Hmm. I wonder who wrote that and what the state of mind was. Cause and, you know, one of the challenging things that I've always had is that that feeling of you're alone and no one else is going through this. And, mm. and what's what the positive about what's happening now in the world is that everyone's going through it. Yeah. Right. So if you just got laid off, a lot of people have been laid off. If you're at home and you can't do anything and it's making you down, a lot of people are doing that. So, you, you know, it takes away, you know, one of these distorted pieces of logic that I was always leap to at least that no one gets this. I'm all alone. No one has ever made it through this. No one knows what it's feel to, feel as bad as I do right now. And it's, it's like, no, it's, it's bullshit. Like, well, and you and I have the benefit of having been in a place more than once where it really was bad. You know, it's so somebody said to me after with a whole cruise ship, you know, the trolls and having to change my phone number and all the negative publicity or whatever. I said, look, here's the deal. Um, I've had two aortic valve replacements, a double bypass, a heart attack, three stents. I have major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. I could tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like, and I lost to a puppet on Star Search. So this is not the worst thing Because <laughs> you and I have had the worst thing. You know what I mean? I, I often feel sorry for people who have not been through something really awful, because when something like this happens, they're just, you know, they've been wearing the rose-tinted glasses. One of my TED Talks coming up, I'm going to pitch, is called um, Depressive Realism. There is some science that people who are depressed see the world more accurately as it actually is than people who are neuronormal because they tend to see it as they believe it to be or want it to be. And they've done some experimentation and, you know, it's called positive cognitive bias. Depressed people have a negative cognitive bias, but, but neuronormal people have a positive. They see it. They gave everybody a task in this particular study and they didn't tell them how to do it. They said, look, do your best. So, Depressed people did their best, not depressed people did their best. Then they asked the depressed people how they thought they did. And then they asked the not depressed people how they thought they did. The depressed people were actually more accurate as to their ability on that task. The people who are neuronormal always overestimated just how good they were at. So it's, it's, I think, and I think mentally ill people, I don't know myself, I, I'm not the spokesperson for mentally ill people, but we also tend, I think, to feel others' pain more acutely, more empathetic, so that, you know, this, as, could, because we see it more clearly, perhaps, than, than other people. Yeah, um, no, I'd, I'd agree with that, because when, when I was growing up, I would just start bawling and, like, have no idea why. And I've never, like, no one said, empath oh, you're an empathetic kid. Like, what? No one, that was not a word. I knew anyone, I don't think I was, like, 35 <laughs> before I heard of empathy. Um, but, no, I was such a sensitive, such an emotional kid that my own emotions would make me be overwhelmed easily. And then even emotional people around me would have me be overwhelmed and weeping and just made me feel more of a freak. But uh, so I'm, I'm glad we have more words for, to express that sort of things well, these days. But. And, and in, in the, in the storm of the, the, you know, the trolls and the awful things they said on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, or whatever. Um, and in my neighborhood on next door.com um, there were, I believe when the situation like that, uh, enemies arise and friends draw closer. And there were some moments where we dropped the dog off for doggy daycare. And they were well aware of, you know, uh, the young woman I dropped the dog off to said, oh, been busy. Um, so when I came back to get the dog, I'm, I said, uh, let me pay. And they said, no, no, it's, it's been a tough week. And I wept standing right there because of that, that's, is that small act of kindness in this storm of, you know, vitriol. And there were, there were a number of those moments where, you know, friends arose and, and, and felt for you and, and reached out and just something really simple like that. You know, it's like 30 bucks, but still it was just, it was, the contrast was stark. So. Yeah. When, when I've been low as I can possibly be, Someone asking, you know, how are you really? 
and really wanting to know and, mm. and letting me just like let loose. And they, again, they just stay there. They just hold that space. They don't run away. They don't try to pretend they even understand if they don't. It's just, wow, another human, let me express myself with, without repercussions to doing that. And, yeah. you know, that's the power of, of a group, of friendship, of a men's group, of a therapist. There's so many ways to get there, but too many people don't even try to get there, to find that support. Yeah, people ask me, what my friends are pressed, what do I do? And I said, look, don't do or say anything. Just sit and actively listen. As a, as a friend of mine who has a double diagnosis, she's an alcoholic and um, recovering alcoholic and, a, and depressed. She goes, I just want somebody to co-sign my bullshit just to go, <laughs> oh, dear God, that sucks. Yeah. You know, that that's all she wants. And so right. it's it's the – and I, every keynote I do, and you're welcome to put my phone number in the show notes, um, I put my phone number up on the screen right below the suicide prevention lifeline number. I go, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline or, or text 741-741. If you're just having a really shitty day, call somebody who's crazy because I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to shoot all over you. You should do this. You should do that. I'm just going to listen. And a guy called me and he goes, I can't believe this is your cell phone number. I go, dude, how, how mean would that be? <laughs> if you're having a bad day, call this number. I said, I'll, I said, let, let the comic in me make it worse. Yeah. You call the number. Hold, please. And then the on hold music is this: another one bites the dust, and another one gone. <laughs> so I have people call me, not always about themselves. It could be I had a guy call me about his college roommate. He goes, "Frank, I'm tracking his Facebook post, and, and I don't know. They just seem dangerous to me. Would you take a look?" So I looked at the post and I said, "Yeah, you need to. Do you know where he lives? Do you have a snail mail address?" Yes. Well, my advice to you would be: call the police in that town and tell them to go by knock on the door and do a welfare check. Now know this, if he is in fact actively suicidal, they're going to take him into custody and he may spend three days in a, in a, in a gated community for mental health with no shoestrings or belt. And he's going to be pissed and unfriend you, but he'll still be alive. Yeah. So sometimes it's not that person who they're not calling about themselves. They're just calling about, you know, somebody they love. Yeah. And that, that brings up a good point. Like I've, I've been in that situation and I advise people in similar circumstances, like, well, would you rather them hate you or for a while or be dead? <laughs> like, it, you know, like what's more important to you? <laughs> but yeah, well, somebody said, um, I'd rather sit through, uh, several hours of whatever bullshit you're going through than sit through 15 minutes of your eulogy. Yeah. 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 That there's, you know, again, one of the upsides about this, uh, coronavirus sweeping the world is that people are coming together. You are seeing people support each other and buying groceries and checking on neighbors and keeping distance yet somehow getting closer. And yeah, you know, offering, offering for older people who can't come out to, you know, just uh, give me your list. I'll put the groceries on the front porch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. So I always like to ask people, uh, guess, guess on the show, is there a particular habit, a practice, a program or a book that has helped you the most that you want to share? Uh, good question. Um, you know, and not everybody can do this, obviously, but speaking out, keynoting, training on suicide prevention and telling my story, being vulnerable on stage, uh, has been extremely therapeutic, uh, because people come up after my presentation, almost every time somebody does, and they've got cr chronic suicidal ideation. They didn't know it had a name and they thought it was just some kind of freak. Had a young woman come up to me after a college show. She goes, I want to thank you for your keynote. You're welcome. She goes, I got to tell you, it made me weep. I didn't make you weep. She goes, well, when you told the story about your car, get it fixed, buy a new one, or you just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I thought I was just some kind of freak. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone. And I wept. Okay. So the upshot of that is I was thinking about her and all the other people that come up to me after the keynotes one evening after doing a college keynote. And I thought, oh, dear God, I am like the character George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. I've seen what these people's lives might be like if I weren't there to speak and tell them they're not alone. So the second thought was I can't now I can't kill myself because if I did, I would take all those people with me. And a friend of mine said, you can't live with that. I go, no, dude, you missed the point. I can't die with that. So now I'm stuck. But that's yeah. the, that, that's what's most therapeutic. Sharing my story is most therapeutic for me. And, you know, 
You don't have to share it in a big group or for money. There's a thing called the National Alliance Mental Illness, NAMI. They've got a program in our own voice or in our own voices where um, you just share your story with, with uh, like community groups and things uh, to, again, to, to let people know they're not alone. There's no pay. You just volunteer and you tell your story. They help you, they help you structure it. Yeah. They teach you safe language. Uh, so I would say you would find that anybody could do it and you could find that you would find that very ther- therapeutic, I think. Yeah. And to, to, to back up what you said about kind of once you discover that you were supporting other people and helping them and it, and, you know, it takes away a bit of the ability to act on that option that is always available. When, when I first went to a support group, I went to a local suicide survivor support group. I thought it meant attempt survivors. That's no. what I think of, no. but it was for people that have lost someone. So I'm there and I realize all these women talking about the sons they lost. I'm like, fuck, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I quickly get the, uh, the facility. I'm like, look, I'm an attempt survivor. I'm like, these people are going to hate me. And I'm like, uh, and it was so opposite that. And it, they would ask me questions like they were talking to their lost son and I yeah. could answer it too. And it was, so it was amazingly helpful for them and me. And it, it like, wow, I, I couldn't do that to see the pain. And that, you know, it was people that had lost a child weeks ago or a decade ago. Yep. And the pain was all still right there. And I used to think part of the story I would tell myself, everyone's better off without me. Yeah, they might be upset for a day or two, but they'll forget about me quick. I'm just a pain in the ass. And now no one has to worry about me because I'm gone. And it's a great service to people. And just absolute fucking bullshit. But- yes, but um, a, 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 all irrational though it may be that many people who are complaining suicide, you know, the people on the outside would say it's a selfish act. But the people on the inside, you and me, we felt the world would be better off. So if for us, it was an irrational but selfless act. I had two women come. Um, my TED Talk on su- uh, Suicide Secret of My Success in Pensacola. There's a mother and daughter. They were there. They typed into Google. They're on vacation. What do in Pensacola? Up came the TEDx talk. Um, they saw my name, Suicide Prevention Speaker, and they both paid $95 to come to the TED talk. Somebody said to me backstage before we started, look, you're in the first flight of speakers. Are you going to leave when you're done? I said, I can't leave. They go, why can't you leave? I go, look, as a friend of mine would say, when we break for cookies and lemonade, hide and watch. So we break for cookies, and sure enough, there are six people lined up to talk to me. I said, this is why I can't leave. They came up to me, and her brother had been depressed, moved in with them after he lost his job. He'd been there about three months, seemed to be improving, and then gone. And so, like you said, she just she wanted to understand. She wanted to know the thought process. I felt like she thought I had gone and stared into the abyss and come back and her brother had stared and gone. And what's the difference? Why, you know, how'd you get there and how how come you came back and he did? I get a lot of that from suicide law survivors. And like I said, they're speaking to you because they, they are not able to ask the person who died these, these questions. So another, another, reason another thing that keeps me is very therapeutic is to hopefully decode it for him a bit yeah yeah helping anyone be it get groceries or contemplate the loss of someone it it takes the focus off of you which is often this distorted fucked up focus and when you focus on someone else you know when when i'm connected to another being i'm no longer able to think about how much i want to die (laughs) yeah yeah well and my wife said um she read or saw on the web today about you know how to cope with social distancing social isolation and one of the tips was help somebody yeah. some way or other. Take the focus off you. So, yeah, I mean, I've always found all the oldest cliches of how to feel better. Um, I resisted and mocked for, for years and years. But then when I tried them, <laughs> hey, that does work. And, you know, journaling and helping people and being grateful and all these things that I poo-pooed forever. Being grateful. Uh, counting. Um, when, after we declared bankruptcy, my wife and I made a habit every morning. We walked the dogs of counting our blessings. And you had to have three blessings each day. And they had to be different from the previous day. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, again, takes the focus. Well, I'm grateful we have a place to live, and I'm grateful all the animals are healthy and you know, whatever. So uh, the um, genesis of the story, I think, for me, with the, the um, character of George Bailey, the guy who, who um, just put up my webinar, we have a three-hour suicide prevention webinar for dentists. Um, his dad had been in AA for a long time, 20 years. And about 15 years in, and he sponsored dozens and dozens of people. Somebody, about 15 years in, somebody said to him, will you ever drink again? 
And he said, no. And they go, how can you know that for sure? He goes, here's the deal. All the people I've sponsored and all the people I'm going to sponsor, if I dive back into that bottle, they will follow me in there. And I can't. So, again, doing something for someone else empowered him to avoid going, you know, diving back into the bottle. Yep. Yep. So, I hear that. Yeah. It's all, it all rings very horribly true. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that, that I'm very grateful that, that we finally connected. Um, <laughs> I'm grateful that, that you could find the time to do this. I'm grateful for this technology that lets us talk to each other. And I'm grateful for all the people that will be supported by what you're sharing here and throughout your career. And I just wanted to, from the bottom of my heart, really tell you that I appreciate it. Well, we all, we know what I do. What do you do? What's your, do you have a, a real job? <laughs> As a comedian say, do you have a real job? <laughs> so I, I am a, a coach, an author, uh, a speaker. In fact, my, my first talk was to a NAMI group. Um, oh, good boy. How many years ago that was? But, but yeah, suicide prevention activist, podcaster, <laughs> actor. I have a sad card as well. So, yeah, we're all kind of in, the, in a similar boat. But, uh, yeah, I decided a long time ago that I just no longer believe that anyone's purpose was to die early due to their own emotional pain. And I, I uh, after not believing it was possible, I truly feel that life is magnificent. And if I can somehow make that leap from really thinking life sucks, then you die. What the fuck am I waiting for to no? this is pretty fucking amazing. And, and even at this time, like we're living in an, an extraordinary fucking time. And yeah. I'm surprised how much I've been able to just witness things and see the brighter side all easily and actually, whereas that was something that seemed impossible. So I just share as much as myself as I possibly can so that others know it's possible. And I think I'm, um two things. One, I had a very similar thought yesterday. I thought to myself, I, was, I, I don't know if you do this, but I have imaginary conversations, um, not with imaginary people, but either I, either I go over a conversation I've just had, or I, I'm, I'm thinking about the conversation I'm about to have. And in my head, I thought to myself saying to somebody, look, I am the most positive suicidal person you'll ever meet. Um, it's, I know it's ironic, but, uh, and the other thing is having survived the last recession, uh, bankruptcy, basically just, you know, knock to your knees, come close to leaving the planet. Yeah. The the upside for you and me at this point, I do believe, is we've been down. We've been knocked to our knees. So, oh, and you know, it's in it's in um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. He says that people, people who are, uh, especially young people, uh, you lose a parent before the age of 15. And the smoke clears and you realize you're still standing. Uh, losing a parent before 15 is one of the worst things that can happen to you. But the kid looks around, maybe not even consciously, and thinks, huh, that's the best you got? Okay. And it makes them, more, uh, makes them a lot less risk averse because they've survived this. So you and I surviving you know, the things we've survived and surviving the last recession makes us just that much more resilient. Like, okay, that's the best you got? Fine bring it yeah so it makes it easier for us this time around whereas i like i said i feel bad for people then, who haven't yeah. faced this kind of adversity yeah and, well and and again the good thing we're all facing it so if it's new it's new to a lot of people so you can't say support's not available you can't say no one else knows what this is like the whole freaking planet is discovering what what this is like at the same time at the very um, same but yeah and i was thinking about bankruptcy back in when i was a kid bankruptcy was a big shame mm. And then I, I discovered after we declared bankruptcy several years into it, and I've mentioned, yeah, we filed Chapter 7. But everybody, oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. well, 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 well. It became, you know, because that's the way the world was. Yeah. yeah. So. Cool. So I, I want to thank you again for your, your time here. And, and what's the best way for people to uh, get in touch with you, reach out to you, find out what you're up to, find you on a webinar, like everything that yeah. might happen? The, um, my website is the Mental Health Comedian. Dot com and that's my face business facebook page that's my linkedin you know all my social media um that i turn back on uh and my phone number is 858-405-5653 858-405-5653 laff by the way uh for my residue for my comedy days and you can text me there you can call me there and don't worry about waking me up because i don't know about you but when i go to bed i turn the son of a gun off oh yeah yeah, you, I said you're not gonna wake me up. It's off. I don't. Yeah, I'm not one of those people. That, you know, I mean, I, don't, I have friends who've got like a um, 
Airbnb or they got some reason they've got to have the phone on all night long. But me, I just turn that some bitch off. Yeah. And, and you, you know, gotta, yeah, everyone just give yourself permission. You don't have to be uh, falsely electronically connected to everyone all the time. Give yourself a break. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, uh, if you're listening to this, you can't catch all this at once. Um, all the details about Frank's contact and I'll have links to the books that were mentioned and Ted talks all available at the show notes at realmenfield.org. And, uh, again, thanks for, for joining me, Frank. Thanks for listening. Everyone out there. Um, Keep taking care of yourself. Keep taking care of each other as best you can. And that is how we all get through this. And we can, you know, be the most positive suicidal people to go through a pandemic all together, right? It's going to be one of those things, I think, I had this conversation with somebody the other day. It's the kids who are old enough to understand what's going on. It's going to be like 9-11, like the recession, like the Kennedy assassination for us, like the Cuban Missile Crisis for me. I'm 63. I can remember people building bomb shelters. I mean, it's going to be one of those benchmarks in your life that everybody went through. Everybody. Oh yeah. Oh man. Do you remember? Oh, everybody's buying toilet paper. Like it was going out of style. So it's going to be one of those, you know, things that everybody of a generation that sort of defines their generation. One generation had nine 11, my generation had the Kennedy assassination and, and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and the Vietnam war. So it's going to be, it's going to be a part and parcel of the fiber of that generation. I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt, it's gonna. It's certainly leaving its mark, and uh, we'll just see how long it goes. But yeah, we're all discovering we're more resilient than we thought. Perhaps we're all discovering new ways to take care of ourselves, take care of each other, and and I just invite everyone to to, to use this time to really focus on and realize what's important. Right. And uh, catch up on all the stuff you never have time for. <laughs> yep, yep. I've got a. You know, I think I'm at. I've did a math. I've got like 177 hours of real men feel. So if you haven't visited the whole catalog, now's your time. Right. Oh, a suggestion for you, by the way, uh, that the podcast uh, audience probably couldn't care less about. But um, we're going to take we're going to take the first two dozen interviews on our suicide prevention punchlines, comics and clinicians and whatever, and turn it into a book. Yeah. Go to Otter AI, have it transcribed, have my sister edit it, make sure the words are all you know spelled correctly, and you know every twenty four episodes is going to be a book. Every individual interview is a chapter. It's, it's an easy way to write a book, yeah. and you know. And, and generate SEO and that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. One of the, the one of the workshops I'm teaching next month is self publishing. Yeah, I teach people how to publish ebooks and and it's it's so much easier than most people think. But yeah, and you everyone has a story that's worthy of being heard. And if speaking of which, being heard, if you don't have yours as an audio book yet, then because uh, you know it's this whole separate genre now. It used to be an add on. Now it's a whole separate there are some authors, famous authors who are not going to print or ebook, they're going straight to Audible. Yeah. It'll never touch paper. Yeah. So, yeah. fascinating times. So find a way to enjoy the fascination. Um, and also just whatever, whatever emotions show up, be willing to feel them. It's all right. And that'll let them pass. Yeah. A, this too shall pass. Yeah. Cool. Again, thank, thank you, Frank. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Well. See ya. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel.